Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Welcome to the show this week. Bill Gretchen, welcome. Hello. Hello there. So, Bill, we may have to change your name just to make this a little easier. I hope that's okay. We'll come up with something. We should let the yeah. listeners decide what we should change your name to. That'd be kind of fun. No. Oh. Yeah, oh, is, I'm, it, not, I'm not going to be a Bodie McBoatface or whatever it was. <laughs> or, or, or Bill, Bill, Billy McBillface or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I could see that really going off the rails quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I could see so, Jeremy scowling at this point, too. With that, yeah, absolutely. That idea. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got a great show for you this week. In the second segment, we're going to be talking mobile security. Black Hat is coming up next week. At, that hasn't heard about that, it is the big security conference in Las Vegas held every year. And it's a good, great place to go and get hacked. You know, there's places to go and relax and stuff like that. Well, that's where you want to go if you want to get hacked. But it's also a great place to learn about the latest, greatest trends, what's happening in security. This is obviously a very big deal and something that affects anybody that uses a computer, which this day and age is most people. So Looking forward to see what's coming out of that. And in the meantime, let's go ahead and dive right in. What do we have in the news for this week? All right. Voyager 2. NASA picks up heartbeat signal after sending wrong command. Yes, it happens to the best of us, I think. But uh, what happened here, the Voyager 2 spacecraft, which is far away, it would take a little bit of time to go there and fix something if you had to do it manually. <laughs> um. It's yeah, just find some aliens to help. In the billions of miles. That's <laughs> what I was thinking, too. You know, or, or get your uh, you know, friendly neighborhood aliens to go fix it. But they <laughs> sent a signal that inadvertently set the antenna two degrees off of where it was supposed to be, which was enough to make it stop taking or sending signals. And it went quiet. And that's a problem. So now, it wouldn't be a complete and total loss if they hadn't been able to fix it. The system does have software that will cause it to auto reset every once in a while. I believe the next time that's set to happen is in November or somewhere around then. Yeah. I read October, but October. uh, Yeah. It could be October. It's, it's, you know, but even so it was kind of a bummer. So they started bombarding this thing with uh, the signal to correct the problem. And evidently it worked or we got help from aliens. One of the two. (laughs) I like the idea of being helped by aliens. It's nice. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) or, or maybe Kirk and, and the Enterprise crew sh- showed up, you know, in that one episode where they show up during, you know, modern times. <laughs> well, didn't, didn't Voyager or something come back as an AI that wanted to take over the universe or something? Yes. Oh, that was, that was, was one the of the movies. movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I vaguely remember that. And uh, Except they called they it go back and Save the whales. Yep, exactly. Wanted to talk. That's right. I remember that. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> So, on a different note, officials found suspected Chinese malware hidden in various U.S. military systems. Yeah, and this is actually not a completely new thing. We talked about this, that uh, they were finding uh, Chinese malware in a lot of different things a while back. But the difference here is, in the past, the primary purpose of it has been for surveillance, watching the military, seeing what's going on, getting intelligence, that kind of thing. And the latest round of this appears to be to disrupt the military. So it's a very different approach for using malware, shutting things down and causing problems. So and why are we using stuff that 
that comes from a foreign country? Well, I, I can't really speak to that because those decisions are not made by me personally. Really? But what I will, oh, wow. What I will say is that... Hmm? I would say the idea is like uh, the Batman movie where they outsourced a bunch of parts to different people so nobody knew what was actually getting made. The problem was is that most of that outsourcing was to China. So, you know, somebody yeah. put two and two together. And that's really that's really the whole thing. And, you know, we've seen this a lot of the... Uh, Things like smart home devices and stuff that are off-label that come from China have software in it that's designed to allow for surveillance and that type of thing. But this is a little more dangerous and a little more critical. Mm-hmm. And I am of the opinion that there's certain electronics that we use that should not be made internationally, number one. Depends on what the application of it is. But you really don't want these kind of problems. And it's something that's very easy to do, especially with our modern equipment that all seems to work where it has an operating system and it's a lot of smart technology and can communicate online. And if you don't know what's going on or you have a problem like this with the malware, it can certainly lead to some very problematic things. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's definitely good that they caught it. It's definitely good that it's being handled. It's something that we need to be very, very careful of, especially with how the world is right now and the way things are going, it's going to be more and more important to make sure things are secure and done properly. I keep wanting to say, shall we play a game? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it feels like it, you know, it feels yeah. like it. And, uh, oh man. <laughs> All right. Okay. On to a different topic. Chicago man tracks down stolen motorcycle with air tag, but police can't help recover it. And I would find this frustrating personally. Yep. Yep. So the gist of what happened here is uh, a uh, motorcycle owner had an air tag on his bike. The bike was stolen, as the headline says, and he was able to find it. But it was parked in a garage, so he didn't have the authority to go in and get it, and neither did the police. So it ended up having to be filed as a stolen vehicle, even though they knew where it was. For whatever reason, the law didn't allow them to recover it. And... This is actually a very interesting thing because many people, including myself, are putting trackers in our cars and other vehicles. And I know it's starting to be built in. I have a dash cam that's online and view the dash cam from anywhere. And it has a GPS locator that I can pick up on my phone. So this technology isn't that unusual or expensive to have anymore. But what's happening is a lot of owners have been taking the law into their own hands and finding their vehicle and confronting the thieves. And that doesn't always end well. No, And they highly recommend that you don't do this. If you find your vehicle, go ahead and call the police. But then I can understand where somebody would be frustrated if they go through that process and they're like, well, it's right here, but they still can't recover it for whatever reason. I think it's that difference between this and LoJack. Like LoJack is specifically designed for car thievery, you know, as a deterrent and to track them. Whereas this is like not, it's more like, I think they used it, what, to find your phone or your keys? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, AirTag, and there's other devices like them. There's an Android equivalent, too. That that really is the intended purpose. You have them on your keys, and when you lose your keys, you can use your phone to figure out where the keys were lost. And then they took this a step further. Um, Amazon Sidewalk is an example of this type of technology where it works with anybody that has enabled equipment so now if you've dropped your keys on the sidewalk somewhere, you're still probably going to be able to find them. And as these so what things if your are going, keys are, are in somebody else's garage lying on the floor? You can't. Right. Well, and they'd have to be in a <laughs> place because these 
type of devices are usually low powered. They're not something mm -hmm. that's actually like on a cell phone network, like the tracker that I have on my dash cam is. So number one, whether it works or not, is, is it going to be able to uh, get a signal that it's compatible with? But yeah, if you dropped your keys in someone else's garage and the system was able to transmit or was able to give you its last loan, known location so that you could figure out it was in that garage, then you would know where they are. Now, mm -hmm. if that's your okay. friend, you knock on the door and ask for your keys back. But if it's someone that's stolen them, it's a different scenario. Right. Okay. There's also these little dog trackers. What if your dog tracker is showing the dog in somebody else's garage locked away? And the, hey, and true the story police on going, that. oh, really? Yep. Okay. That actually did happen probably more than once. But there's one that I'm aware uh -huh. of off the top of my head that they had a dog fighting ring and they were stealing people's dogs to throw to the other dogs as a toy. And a dog owner had found their dog missing and tracked them down and found they're in a building. And in this jurisdiction, the police were able to go in and figure out what's going on. It actually broke up this huge dog fighting ring. Um, Google it. The story's online. And huh. this was, oh, five, six years ago now, I think maybe even a little bit longer when this technology first started coming out. And, you know, from that standpoint, yeah, it the law varies from place to place. Even in the States, it's different where you are. It can be very different between even cities or counties, much less states. So it's a matter of figuring out what can be done. But if you have stolen property, you need to deal with it. Now, also something like a pet is usually treated differently than something that's not alive. So you've got that too. And this is all stuff that's way above my expertise to be able to comment on the law on it just that there is a difference. And that's why sometimes you have these different type of things. So, I mean, they should be getting an update. A lot of them are kind of getting old, but handheld gaming systems are getting an update. Yeah. So, and Bill, you know, this is something I know you're into gaming actually a little bit more than I am. And we've talked about this in the past. Sony's coming out with a handheld gaming device that essentially streams from your PlayStation 5. And then, of course, Nintendo Switch has been around for a long time now and is basically a system that's both. It's a handheld and it also will plug into your television and then work like a console. So, you know, we're looking at some of that type of a thing. Valve has a system called a Steam Deck that's actually capable of running full PC games, but it's a handheld. So what we're talking about here is actually something from Nintendo that's being rumored right now. Uh, that would be like a Switch 2 or a Switch Pro or whatever they might call it, and figuring out where that's going to go. And it is on the development cycle where Nintendo seems to release. So it would make sense that this is up and coming. Now, Nintendo hasn't confirmed this, but they are saying there's a new platform coming out. So that could mean a lot of different things. I don't know, Bill, is, is, is handheld gaming like that even still a thing that we need? I mean, your phone can do a lot, right? Yes and no. Your phone is more dedicated for other things, and Android and uh, iOS are not necessarily uh, designed for gaming. I mean, games can be done on them, but in general, the, the computing power is different. I mean, yes, if you have the brand new system, it's pretty good, but you know your cell phone still leagues below most desktops that you could buy today. Whereas... It also comes down to the fact of dedicated hardware. Um, we've talked about that before with the difference between PC and console. Um, like Switch games are... Nintendo's got an iron fist on how they maintain and control the quality of their games, I guess is the way to put it, and which is why you don't get a lot of games uh, sometimes. 
Right. But um, it is more of a mobile thing. I mean, I, I legit saw an entire family, every kid, and I, there were seven of them, had a Nintendo Switch. And they were doing that so that they could sit there and be quiet while <laughs> mom was doing whatever she was doing there. <laughs> mm. But you know, and you do you do see that a lot with tablets and other things too. And you know, but one of the comments you've made in the past, I know, is that when you have a console, whether it's a handheld or one that connects to your TV, you can focus the development because you know what your hardware is going to be, you know what the operating system is going to be, and that's not the case on something like a phone usually. Yeah, and see, I th- always find this to be interesting too. Is there is actually a weird case that. A lot of the time, the maximum potential of the console is only really realized right before it's phased out or just after it is, especially with Sony. Um, you look, go back and look at the original PlayStation, the games that started it um, versus the games that ended the first PlayStation were completely different levels of graphics and uh, detail. Um, same hardware, very little change. Um, some other systems like Xbox, they kind of just throw out what they got and people learn how to max those out pretty early. I think, um, developer wise, uh, Nintendo, Nintendo, like I said, they got a quality thing and you might be pushing it. You don't, not be, they, they set where your bar is. You know, and it seems like with some of this, uh, stuff like with the Nintendo switch, it, the Switch itself doesn't support full high definition on the screen that's built in it, and it certainly doesn't do 4K, which is pretty much a standard now. So they're saying that that would be a new feature. But And you also have to look, because a lot of Nintendo's equipment's different. I mean, you really wouldn't need a 4K screen on a handheld device. No. But you would if you're you know projecting it to your 120-inch television wall. you know. So that does make a difference, too, it seems like. But you need the processor to be able to support both situations. Yes. So, you know, dealing with uh, kind of the longevity and what it's going to do and kind of trying to future proof it a little bit, I, I guess that would be the word for it, to be able to keep going for a while. And Nintendo's products are still out there. I mean, the Nintendo Switch and, and the Wii, Wii U, which was kind of an odd system, but the Wii, I still have a Wii and I still use it and oh, yeah. it works just fine, you know? That, that's the other difference, too. Um, yes, the other consoles have tried it. Um, a lot of them focus more on VR, like Sony and Xbox. Uh, Nintendo has always been very good at the novelty of it, like motion controllers. Because uh, that was always the big selling point for Nintendo Wii was the motion control ability. You know, if you're playing a golf game, you can feel like you're playing a golf game. Right, uh, same right. with the Switch. You know, the controllers are also motion capable things like that so it's a different way of playing so you don't always get the best graphics with the Wii but you're going to get an experience probably more interactive you know and they do have virtual reality games on the Switch now that's the second try for Nintendo the Virtual Boy uh, wasn't quite up to snuff when it came out but the Switch does it well so yeah having those uh, different input capability and all that kind of stuff does make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. all right a cracked piece of metal healed itself in an experiment that stunned scientists. So this is kind of a proof of concept thing, but it is an interesting idea. 
that uh, they had a piece of metal that was exhibiting metal fatigue. And on a molecular level, they were able to get it to essentially, as the headline says, heal itself. And to avoid getting into the nitty gritty of this, because we don't have time for that right now. But if this could be done on a larger level, there's a lot of uses that something like this could really affect. I mean, you could do something like building a bridge and over time you have a life expectancy and a big part of it's metal wears out and the fatigue and that kind of a thing. It's just one example where something like this could really be something that would uh, take this and make it the life expectancy a lot longer and it'd be a lot safer. Well, I mean, how quick is the process? At this yeah, and the experiment, it went very quickly as soon as they did whatever they did. Um, to be able to initiate it. And they were able to, uh, you know, to get that done. But again, you're talking a molecular level versus real world, which obviously could be two very different things. Well, I mean, because NASA has been trying to do this for, you know, various things, because as we all know, in space and high altitude, a uh, BB is one of the most dangerous things ever traveling at three times the speed of sound, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it can go right through and damage stuff, and they've had a lot of problems with that. It's the uh, whole idea of that. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, is having something that can heal itself after a puncture like that is very important, like for the space station or solar panels. So. And on that, uh, a robotic waiter named Plato divides a small organ town. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing. This has happened in Escatata, it's a uh, which is a little town nearby where I live, and it is um, a situation where a restaurant was having trouble finding people to work. Uh, you know, like as the uh, wait staff and that type of thing. So they bought a robot, and it's very interesting how this is polarizing people. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that just love it, and there's people that will never go back to the restaurant again because they have it. In fact, the owner was saying that one family said they'd eat there, but they didn't want the robot anywhere near them. I don't know what's going to go on here. I'd like it, but, you know, with facial recognition, I could sit down, the robot would know what I want automatically, and I wouldn't even have to worry <laughs> about ordering. I mean, is the robot speaking like chopper and swearing or or what? what what's the no, deal? I There's no explanation? <laughs> if it was chopper, that might be an explanation. Or <laughs> anybody that doesn't know what that is, check out Star Wars. But uh, <laughs> I mean, is it an Uncanny Valley thing or is it just, you know... A pretty basic robot. It's a, it's a basic robot. It has a screen that has a face, and the front of him looks like he's wearing a tuxedo with a tie and all of that kind of thing. And he's on wheels, and he uh, the food is placed on the robot, and the robot brings the food to the table. The robot can talk to you, and you can talk back to it. Right, that's basically all it is. So huh. what's the difference between that and um, what's that diner? Used to be able to have it, and they'd have the menu sitting there, and you'd reach over, and you'd hit this, like, intercom button or computer screen type in what you wanted and you didn't even have to interact with the waiter yeah that's yeah. my feeling too or or like the conveyor belt sushi places i mean you know in all honesty you're kind of doing the same thing but uh yeah, i don't know more it's open just, to this <laughs> yeah I, I think i am too the reaction was was interesting though to see both sides of it huh. one big question people were asking is do they, are they supposed to tip the robot and if so do they tip it with batteries uh. <laughs> that's cute I, uh, that's racist no <laughs> <laughs> no uh. Uh, taiwanese company demands u.s taxpayers cover the higher costs of making semiconductors in arizona yeah and apparently this isn't going too over too well with the people that live in arizona um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really 
So, I mean, it's basically, as it says, uh, we're trying to move uh, chip manufacturing back in the United States for a variety of reasons. The uh, pandemic was part of it with the supply chain issues, but also with the monsters in Russia and all of that. It's going to become more and more important to manufacture stuff domestically again to know what it is. Uh, We were talking earlier in the news about the Chinese malware being hidden in U.S. military systems. But it does cost more to manufacture here than some other places. Our standard of living is higher. Our wages are higher. Our workers actually have to be in a safe environment and all of that. And um, they would like the uh, taxpayers to pay them for that. Now, like I say, again, this isn't going over too well with the people in Arizona. I don't think this is actually going to be a thing. But it, and it is also not the position of the Taiwanese government either. It's just a company. But still, it's kind of interesting that they would even try to ask for that. Yeah. Completely automated public Turing test to pull computers and humans apart. So that's a, very, a mouthful. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. and Gretchen, I know you love acronyms, but you'll recognize this one, CAPTCHA. Uh, and for anyone that doesn't know what that is, if you go online and submit a form or do certain things, you might have a box come back to make you prove that you're a human. I don't know why you'd want oh, to do that, but okay. uh, that's a CAPTCHA box. And okay. it's annoying, and a lot of people don't like these, and they don't work too well. With AI and everything else, the bots and stuff are getting around the CAPTCHA devices. So this is actually something that we talked about on Tech Wednesday this week, and I know not a lot of people are going to be too upset, but we're seeing the death of these. It's not going to be like Flash where it just suddenly goes away, but this is something where its time has passed. And having to click on the form and tell them which pictures are panda or cake or something is, or it's the letters that you can't it's, read. It's usually buses and and, and stoplights. Yeah. <laughs> just like, what? Motorcycles, boats. <laughs> uh-huh. And other strange things. Yeah. And like I say, the worst one is the letters that are slightly screwed up and you can barely read them. And yeah. human or robot or not, I have trouble reading those. And it's just, you know. But at the I, end of the day, <laughs> I heard a rumor about that a long time ago, that the text ones, some of them, when it was a word, was actually a company using it as a CAPTCHA to read old books and transcribe them. That's interesting. But I also I heard see that, that. Later, the later CAPTCHAs, especially the photo ones, were something like Google, and I'm not saying it was, were using those to train the AIs to be able to pick up things. <laughs> Actually, that would make sense, too. I mean, you know, again, a, a rumor, but uh, but I could see that going in that direction. And, you know, we've talked a lot about training AIs in the past here, so some, certainly something like that would make sense. I don't know. There's some other technologies coming out that's replacing this as a programmer. I'm looking at them. They do work better. And uh, one of them is a honeypot. We'll talk about that in a future show. But it seems like this is something you're not going to have to do too much longer. All right, after the break, we are going to be talking about mobile security. We've got a great interview. Don't go away. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check us out online, userfriendlyshow.com. That is where you go to find out everything that you want to know about User-Friendly back episodes and even our social media on the forever changing name social media sites. 
but we'll yeah. keep it all there, keep it simple and keep it easy. I uh, <laughs> see you smiling there, Gretchen, on that I topic. Keep for- I keep forgetting which which media <laughs> I'm on anymore. I, I keep looking for that little blue bird and it's like, I can't find the app. I can't find the app. And then it's like, oh, it's not called that anymore. So, well, be careful. You might get X'd out here if you keep thinking that. Ooh. I get asked out. Oh, yeah. Wait, do we still have a blue check mark or is it a blue X now? Uh, yeah, really, you know. Well, the thing of it is, know. is on the system, you're still tweeting and it still uses those terms. So, you know, we'll see. I, I know the city of San Francisco isn't particularly happy about his sign either. I, so. I think we should, we should call it bantering now. Banter. Bantering? A, a, new, yeah. a new new social media called banter. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I... I, 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 I anyway, I... <laughs> I have nothing to say about that, but instead of tweeting to you X, I mean that doesn't sound good for some reason. It just Xing someone. It sounds like are we giving them hugs and kisses or are we killing them? Yeah, yeah that's kind of. <laughs> I guess we could call it a musking or a musk. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna musk. That's musk, that's musk, uh, you know musk. moving right along <laughs> here on that topic. We've got a good interview in this segment. And uh, we're going to be going to that in just a minute here, talking about mobile security. Black Hat is coming up next week, and that's going to be a fun event. Uh, Looking forward to being there. Chaz will be covering it as well as he has in past years. But we've got a lot of good people out there trying to figure out how to keep us all secure and a lot of people that are not. So for anybody, you know, the question that's been asked is why do they call it Black Hat? And that term actually goes back to the idea of hackers. White Hat is a hacker that does things on a legal side, a black hat, not so much. And then there's a gray hat, which is somewhat in between. I'm not sure that's an official term, doesn't but that, it's definitely one Doesn't that I go use. back to the old cowboy movies where yep. the good guys wear a white hat and the exactly. bad guys wear a black hat, and so you could tell them apart? <laughs> Unless it was a Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> he was wearing a brown hat. Exactly. So what does that mean? <laughs> so I, maybe that's like a gray hat. Anyway, but that's where those terms come from. and. Um, There's a lot of interesting stuff it looks like there's going to be this year, the different things that they're presenting. But this particular topic has to do with mobile security. And one of the interesting things about this is the fact that when you look at this, there's a lot of differences between thinking about security on a mobile device versus a desktop or a laptop computer. Because in those days, your company had a setup, you would come in, use your desktop, even if you brought your own laptop, there's a series of protocols to go through where they can secure the connection. But today, with your own mobile device, you expect it to be able to run from anywhere. And in line with that, there's a lot more that needs to be done to make sure that that information remains secure. So their company has an approach to this that actually is very interesting. So for that, let's go ahead and go to the interview. Joining us now is our guest, JT Keating. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Looking forward to it. So I know we're going to be talking about mobile security and some of those related topics, but let's go ahead and start kind of at the beginning. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Yeah, sure. Appreciate that. Uh, Again, JT Keating. I run strategic initiatives for a security company called Zimperium. And Zimperium has been built on the whole concept of the fact that if you think about it, Bill, there's so many mobile powered business initiatives today. Um, whether it's mobile banking for consumers, whether it's uh, BYOD and remote working for, for employees, all of these folks are doing everything on mobile devices. Um, and just like the you know classic infamous Willie Sutton back in the day, the gangster, when they said, uh, hey, you know, Willie, when are you going to stop robbing banks? And he said, when you stop putting money in them, um, as long as there's something of value, 
um, the bad guys know where to go. And so while our lives have moved to mobile in all these ways, the hackers know it. And so they're coming after them as well. And that's what Zimperium is set up to, to solve. And, you know, it's actually a very good point because I think it was about two years ago, we kind of pivoted to where the majority of web access was on mobile, more than 50% than on desktop. And that, that was a big deal when that happened. But you're absolutely right. I mean, most people nowadays do access through mobile apps, mobile phone, tablets, and those kind of devices. So um, let's start at maybe a more of a 10,000 foot level and tell us a little bit about what you've kind of experienced with security and what is causing you to go down the road you're going with your company to try and solve some of those uh, problems with the hackers? Yeah, I know. Appreciate it. <clears throat> you know, at, at the highest level, Zimperium, as we've been in business for 10 plus years, and we've always been here to protect enterprises against mobile risks and attacks. Um, and as you know, today, for instance, 60% of the endpoints accessing corporate enterprises are mobile. Um, you know, and again, as we mentioned, there you got mobile banking, where ninety plus percent of the people now are are doing mobile banking. So, what it's done is it's actually, as a security company, you're always looking at, um, you know, where are the vulnerabilities, where are the risks, right? And as this new perimeter is out there with mobile devices and mobile apps, it means that the companies are exposed to risks that they haven't been exposed to historically. So our whole fundamental principle is how to enable companies with those mobile-powered initiatives with a mobile-first security strategy because mobile is different than traditional endpoints. There's a lot of things that are different about it, and I can go totally techie nerd on you, but probably bore half the people listening, so I won't. But there are differences, and so you have to account for them differently. And that's, that's our job, and that's what we're passionate about. So it seems like you're dealing with kind of a, a broad cross-section, too, because you've got, you know, primarily Android and iPhone formats, but different companies are going to be using different technologies across these different things and all need to have the one common thing of being secure. And is this something that uh, you find is a problem that you have to support a number of different applications and formats and different things, or is there a, is there a silver bullet for it? Well, um, you know, as, uh, as I think you you know, Bill, from because you've been doing this for a long time, there is no such thing as a silver bullet. Um, you know, but as a general rule, though, since we started, it has consolidated down pretty significantly when it comes to the operating systems, right? So um, it is an iOS and Android game today. I mean, things like Windows Mobile and stuff have kind of gone by the wayside, right? Um, so. Now, on the Android side, it becomes a little bit more complicated depending on what part of the world you're in because you know, on the Android, with iOS, Apple is the one who produces the operating system. It runs on Apple devices only, and so it's all nice and clean and tidy. On the Android side of the world, it depends on what devices you have, um, right? So Google has their own device it's called a Pixel, but then you have Samsung and you have HTC and you've got all these different ones. So the device what ends up happening is a difference, especially when it comes to when people update their operating system. If there's a new security vulnerability that comes out, and you know, Google will patch it and they'll put the patch out, but then it's up to each of the manufacturers to decide what they're going to do differently. So there is a little bit of a complication when it comes to that side of things. When you shift over to the app side of the world, there's been ins and, you know, ups and downs, et cetera, of is it native code, a native app that's produced just for mobile? 
or is it a hybrid app that is produced to run on the web and on mobile? And it kind of goes back and forth. And that provides a little bit of a complication. Uh, but in the end game, from a security standpoint, it's still fundamentally the same. Um, and it's the same issues and risks that, that we're facing. All right. So let me ask you the question. How do you solve this problem? Um, yeah. So the problem overall, and this is something that we've noticed, historically, we were pretty focused on the device side of things. Um, I mentioned that mobile is different than traditional endpoints, right? Um, there's three ways that mobile is different than traditional. One is the user is the admin. If you ask any security professional, they'll tell you the single biggest risk in an organization has always been a carbon-based life form, right? You know, people make really stupid decisions. And now that person, instead of being on a centrally managed desktop inside millions of dollars in network protection with corporate anti-phishing and all that, now they're spending all the time in the wild, even before the pandemic, connecting to any network they want, installing whatever malware they want, and they decide if they're going to update, which, by the way, they don't, as I like to joke, even though it's not really a joke because it's my mom. Um, she refuses to update hers because she believes it's going to slow down Angry Birds. So it's so that person is now the admin, right? Um, the other thing is all apps are in containers on mobile. So apps don't get to play with apps. And then the currently operating system is locked down. So it makes it a, a different world, right? So we spend all of our time initially on the how do we protect the device? Because in order to be persistent as a bad guy on mobile, since all apps are in containers, I think of it as a container ship. If I want to go from one container to another, I actually take over the device. I take over the ship, right? So our initial focus was all around that. And so we have a machine learning based engine, you know, AI machine learning, but we've been doing it for 10 years. So it's pre uh, hype um, of, of late. And we can behaviorally detect known and unknown device network phishing and app attacks. Um, and so you know, you've got device compromises and exploits, you've got malicious networks and man in the middle attacks. You have malicious apps. And then, of course, you have mobile phishing. And mobile phishing is a huge problem because all traditional corporate anti-phishing is inline in corporate email. When was the last time you remember getting a phishing email? And when was the last time you remember getting a phishing text? And then, oh, by the way, you have oh. eight QR codes and all this stuff. And so, so mobile phishing is a major, major problem. So on the device side, we're saying we need to protect devices against those attacks. On the app side, we saw that there was a lot of the same things that needed to be dealt with. So, you know, for instance, we have a major um, customer is one of the biggest banks in the world. And they're using our technology to protect the endpoints of their employees. But they also have it inside of our, our I think, of BMW as, a, as an uh, engine company, not a car company. Right. They produce engines. They put in a whole bunch of different things. We have one engine that protects the devices. If it's the same engine that can protect the apps when they're running on my mom's iPhone, which, as I mentioned, she will never update. And she's got all that stuff. Right. So on the app side, we actually have a suite that protects mobile apps from risks in development when they're put in the app store, because the bad guys are the first guys to download it. And when it's actually running on my mom's device. What we've actually done recently because of these major customers like the bank I'm talking about, they said, I want a uniform view and visibility across all of my endpoints and all of my apps. 
So we actually consolidated it up into a, a mobile, what we call mobile first security platform. It's kind of buzzwordy, but that's okay. That's fine. Let the marketing people have their fun, right? Um, but it actually enables you to be able to have all those benefits on the endpoint, all those benefits on the app side in one unified framework, and then tie it into your SIM products, your XDRs, your fraud systems, depending on what you're doing. So that that's kind of the nuts and bolts of kind of how we are going about protecting these things. And it seems like the, your approach is very different than, than what's been done in the past, because it used to be, okay, if you, you know, don't use the same passwords and which even the use of passwords is starting to be phased out. I noticed now, but all of that idea, but in this day and age, there's been so many hacks and so much of our private information is already out there. So it sounds like you need to address it from a completely different direction than anything you would have the user do. And and that seems to be kind of where you're headed with this, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, part of this has to do with the same kind of macro trends that we see in cybersecurity in general, um, which is really a movement towards, you know, as much as you can possibly do, autonomous protection, right? The, you know, the, the stuff where try and take the user out of the mix, you know, Right. You know, to the extent that you can try and see a problem, solve a problem, you know, you know, kill the problem, even before without involving any user involvement, it does get a little bit more complicated on the mobile side because, like I said, there there, there can only be one super app on any given um, device, and that was a decision made by Apple and Google. That happens to be what they call MDM, Mobile Device Management. It can actually manage your device. It was originally created to, you know, solve two problems. What happens if JT gets fired again? Because it happens daily, right? Or what happens if Bill loses his phone? Um, how do we get our corporate data off of it? That you know, originally Apple and Google were like, no, we're not, you know, tough to the companies, and then the company said, well, we're not going to buy millions of your devices, and they said, okay, right. we can solve this. Um, you know, and that was an MDM, but on mobile, you can only have one of those. So that movement towards keeping the user out of the loop as much as possible is complicated on mobile, A, because apps are in containers, B, because whether it's a corporate device or a personal device, the de mobile devices are personal, right? I mean, everybody thinks of them as personal. They're in your pocket, they're in your purse, they're on your table. Um, that's different than your laptop. So it, it creates some complicating factors, but it's still part of that overall motion that you were mentioning. Right. Okay. So, yeah. And, 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 and that totally makes sense because there'd have to be, you know, a very specific approach. Now your company's going to be at Black Hat coming up here in a little bit. Um, is this your first time at Black Hat? No, we've actually been here uh, a few times. Um, I mean, I've been there. Cool. I've been there more times than I want to count. Um, thank you, thank you, Las Vegas. Um, you know, but uh, as a company, um, you know, we've been there. I think two or three years now. So, what kind of a customer or client are you looking for? It sounds like more the business end, right? Yeah. So, our, like I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, as a company, we've been set up to protect enterprises and government agencies. That's that's been our thrust, right? Um, so, we've been focused on being the enterprise leader. Um, in what uh, Gartner refers to as mobile threat defense, which is the uh, equivalent of, for those folks that follow this, 
uh, EPP, EDR, endpoint protection platforms, endpoint detection and response. But for mobile, because you have to take a different approach because of the different architecture stuff we talked about. So yes, so we're predominantly focused on the enterprise. And I'll come back to the, the rest of your question, but there is a, a, a side note, which is one of our huge advantages is that we can do almost all of our detection on device. Other companies have taken an approach where they're going to put it up in the cloud. Well, when you do it on device, you have a bunch of advantages, one of which is from a privacy standpoint. We literally don't have to take any data off a device if we don't want to. So, for instance, in Europe with GDPR or in California with CCP, we just get rid of all the personal information and we can still get forensics. But we've also done, it's a corporate social responsibility thing that we do with cities and states where we have done what we call our secure projects, which is the same technology that's being used to protect the Department of Defense and other customers of ours, is, but it's being offered for free by the cities or states to those citizens to protect them with the exact same technology, the exact same detection, but without any data ever leaving the device. So we don't actually sell directly to consumers, but we help protect consumers. We have NYC secure for New York City. We have Michigan secure, LA secure, Dallas secure, others coming down the pipe. But back to your other question from a black hat standpoint, as a general rule, we have, we have a few different approaches and a few different uh, categories of, of customers, if you will. For Zimperium directly, we predominantly sell to global enterprises. Um, you know, generally speaking, for the most part, it's enterprises with a billion dollars in revenue and above because of the certain complications and the certain fun challenges that we like to solve, right, on that side of things. We have, we also, though, power a significant number of OEM white-labeled partnerships that cover other parts of the market as well. So if there are customers that are smaller than a billion dollars, for instance, we have a significant number of both EPP, EDR, and telco partners that cover all of those market spaces. So, you know, and I, you've talked about this a little bit on your company level, so I'm going to ask this next question in a little bit of a broader way. Where do you see cybersecurity in the next couple of years? I mean, we're going down a road here that seems to change directions every week or two or even more often. Uh, how do you deal with that and where do you think we're going to be? And do you think that cybersecurity is going to continue to become more of a problem or do you think we're going to start to see some you know, some actual um, solutions like what you're bringing to the table being adopted in a way that it stops the bad guys from being able to do what they're doing. Yeah, Bill, I would like to, uh, I, I, I truly would like to be able to say that it's magically going to go away. Um, and, um, but, but it's not, um, you know, again, get back to the Willie Sutton thing and it just happens to be legit. You even think about it on a nation state side of things, you know, it, it's less about missiles. It's more about, you know, ones and zeros, right? You know, nation state type right. stuff. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, we have a very active customer advisory board. Again, we have hundreds and hundreds of enterprise customers, some of the biggest banks in the world, pharmaceuticals, uh, defense, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I have the, the pleasure in, to moderate customer discussions whenever we have our, our customer advisory board meetings. And the most recent one we had was about a month ago. The topic that we actually discussed was all about the topic of AI and how how are the companies looking at generative AI um, in, in a, both from a 
What are they being asked to secure? What are their risks about it, et cetera? Um, in our threat research team, we've got a group called Z-Labs, which are just ridiculously smart threat researchers. They've been spending a lot of time looking at how can generative AI and machine learning and all that stuff, how, we, how do we continue to use it to improve our detection and protection? But then there's the flip side, which is how are those technologies, do we see them being used to actually create more problems for everybody? You know, you think about, you know, script kitties, um, you know, and, and the fact that they would have to kind of hack their way through and kind of figure stuff out and kind of bump into walls. And, you know, a lot of this generative AI stuff just tells them what to do. Um, you know, the first place we've already seen it is in, in a significant improvement in the quality of phishing attacks. You know, a lot of times historically, phishing attacks have been, you know, you'd see typos, you know, it'd be kind of awkward English or whatever. Right. You know, no, no mas. Um, you know, they, they can start using these things. So for us, that's been one of the major trends we've been looking at. There's trends in terms of platform. Like we said, you know, obviously this is our business, so we're biased. But it also you look at the data like you were talking about, everything's going to mobile. You know, when was the last time you did web-based banking versus when did you do a mobile bank? You know, I mean, it's, you know, right. so you've got that macro trend there, but another macro trend is on this whole side of um, moving away from traditional crime. I and mean, when we first did the deal with the city of New York to do um, NYC Secure, at the time, Mayor de Blasio was there and Jeff Brown was there, CISO. And when they were asked about it, what they said was, um, you know, our job is to protect, you know, we've been protecting people on the streets for years, but now almost all the crime is moving to, to mobile and to online, and we need to protect them over there too. I just think that's an indication of the fact that it's just, it's just continuing. And the other thing is, like with mobile, again, biased, a different form factor. Things like spyware are much bigger problems on mobile because the phone's sitting there with you the whole time. You can turn on the camera and you can do it. It's no matter where you, you're in a, a meeting, even if you don't have your laptop, you have your phone with you. Um, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a different attack vector. No, and, and it, I mean, that just totally makes sense. All right, well, we're just about out of time. Uh, how does somebody find you online? Uh, that's great. We are at www.zimperium.com. Um, and we would love to uh, love to chat with anybody and or swing by our booth at, at Black Hat. Um, and we would love to uh, see anybody that happens to be out there. Now, that sounds great. Do you know where your booth's going to be yet? Um, let me see. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that was told to me by somebody. Um, if not, we'll put it out on yeah, our social I'm media gonna, for everybody. But just if I'm you have it. I forget <laughs> which one it is. Um, so, but, so. No worries. No worries. We'll get it up on the social media on our end, too, so everybody can find you. But thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, you'll have to let us know. I'm sure we're going to get some questions. And maybe afterwards, we can have you back in a few months, find out about how Black Hat went and uh, get you some of our listeners' questions. That sounds great, Bill. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate chatting with you. Well, guys, I don't know. I can't. What do you think? I can't wait to see what else comes out of Black Hat this year. It's always a fun conference. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll have to check out, uh, there's something called the Wall of Potatoes or some such thing. And that's everybody that's been hacked when they get there, that your name gets up, put up on this board. So uh, 
I'm going to see if I can hack the board. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> but anyway, so, all right, well, stay secure out there. And as we go ahead, we'll be bringing you the latest and the greatest in the world of encryption next week. Until then, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.